Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 21, the third installment of the award-winning novel, The Surgeon's Wife, read by the author. Mike Boudreau is the chief of surgery at a New Orleans hospital. Clayton Otherson, an influential surgeon, is making life-threatening mistakes in surgery, and Mike must discipline him. Mike tries to help his friend, but other colleagues demand Clayton stop surgery. Catherine, Clayton's wife, falls in love with Mike, and Clayton becomes obsessed with revenge against Catherine. Mike and Catherine struggle to create a future together, rejected by a disdainful New Orleans society. I'm Bill Coles, your host. So let's get started with installment three of The Surgeon's Wife. Chapter 26 On Thursday morning at 8.39 a.m., Catherine and her lawyer arrived at Clayton's lawyer's offices for depositions. They waited in a conference room. A court recorder and a video photographer set up equipment. Her lawyer requested a private room where they might prepare, but when ushered into an unused office, the lawyer signaled Catherine to be quiet, sure that they were being recorded. They returned to the room for depositions. The lawyer read a novel. Catherine waited nervously. At 10.30, Clayton's lawyer said Clayton had not shown, and Clayton's lawyer suggested taking Catherine's deposition. Catherine's lawyer advised against it and suggested a new date. Clayton's failure to appear pressed Catherine's need for a settlement. For the first time, she could not repress a fear of failure in a fair settlement. On some days, panic never left her, she decided to try for reconciliation with Clayton. She did not let Mike know her plans. He would not approve. She believed Clayton was her only salvation. He was rich and her husband. Mike had almost nothing in comparison, and together she and Michael had only their love for each other. For her lawyer, she had indexed facts from thousands of papers and drafts and notarized depositions spread out on the floor and marked with color-coded tabs, as if they would save her, all poised for action that had not come. At the moment she climbed in the car for the trip to face Clayton, she forgot the documents she had carefully extracted to convince Clayton to be human. She chose the SUV, the only thing she still had that Clayton owned. The drive to Grand Isle was rote. The once comfortable world was now unfamiliar, almost bizarre. Twice she stopped by the roadside, ready to turn back. She dreaded confrontation with Clayton, but she needed him. She drove on. The sun pinpointed on still water. Dry brown grass was almost transparent. Lush and green year-round foliage seemed suspended in its chlorophyll cycles. She parked on the street, feeling the driveway of her once-loved beach house was unwelcoming. She knew Clayton saw her approach, and he opened the door to stare without greetings. Clayton, I need to talk to you, she said. Now she had arrived, she brimmed with shaky determination. Let me come in. She brushed by him. Sit down, she said, buoyed by her sudden decisive entry. He didn't move. She chose a hard-backed wooden chair. Sit, she said again, pointing to an overstuffed chair. They would be at each other's eye level. He yielded. 
Do not cut me off, she said. We built a life together. Part of your success is our success. No, Clayton said. I haven't asked for anything. It's done, he said. She decided to speak without remorse, without contrition. You can make it right, Clayton. I deserve that. You need that, too, she said forcefully. Look at you, a hermit, selfish and alone. Your life is a wreck, and you're thinking only of yourself. I marvel at how happy I am, he said. I am ecstatically happy. The pulsing of his neck veins slowed. To finally be rid of you and that child. She's yours, Catherine said. Love her as you once did. Her confidence fled. He had no sympathy for her. His eyes blazed with a hate that seemed unfathomable. He was consumed, and he was blaming her. Nothing, he said. You're wasting your time. Suddenly, the pressure of her failure loomed over her. Her life was a house of cards, each support point only touching, never fixed, and any height or width achieved always in jeopardy. Please, Clayton, I need the chance. Do it for me. Clayton remained silent and impassive. You're evil, she said. I love someone who loves me, Clayton, someone who has the gift of loving someone else. You'll never know that, and for that I feel sorry for you. How condescending, she thought, but good. Then her confidence slipped. Did she have the right to criticize him? Maybe she was no prize. I'll take you to court. You hit Melissa, she finally said as forcefully as she could. I slapped her once, Clayton said. That's hardly abuse. And she's not mine. I've never been unfaithful, Catherine said. You'll never prove that. Not one lawyer I've consulted believes you'll get anything if I find the right sample, Clayton said. You'll find nothing. DNA can do wonders. She stormed to the door, opening it. You're pitiful, she said. You're not yourself, Catherine. Have you sought help uh, from a doctor? The tension in her face hurt. She slammed the front door. She climbed into the SUV that was registered in his name, but her car. Ha! At least she still had something. She drove in fits and starts, 25 to 85 to 50, but never stopping, moving forward, taking random turns, crossing the river more than once, slicing through cane fields on narrow two-lane roads, blasting the piercing horn at country bikers and cowering pedestrians. The sun vanished. Dark clouds rolled in and bellowed. Raindrops at first spotted the windshield. Then sheets of water splashed across her vision, too much for the wipers to handle well. The side mirror images disappeared in squiggles of water. She wept, at times out of control. She was at the ramp to the Huey Long Bridge and tailgating a slow-moving small car. A brake light winked. She had no view over the side of the narrow bridge, only gray turbulence. Near the top, she sped up and continued racing on down the slope. The winking light disappeared for a few seconds. Her foot pumped the brake before she jammed her foot down. The brake light in front of her was inches away. She yanked the wheel to the left. Metal scraped on metal. She was upside down, hanging in her straps, then right side up, jolts and accelerations. The world went dark. 
From information on the car registration, the police contacted Clayton within minutes before Catherine was removed by ambulance from the accident scene. Michael, Clayton said. Mike recognized Clayton's voice on the phone. Catherine's had an accident. She's coming to the ER. How bad, Mike asked. I don't know, Clayton said. Mike wondered if a bit of concern had seeped into Clayton's voice. Mike broke the connection and canceled a minor outpatient procedure. He was at the ER when Catherine arrived 26 minutes later. She was bruised, but without serious injury. Mike called Clayton. She's okay, he said. Who gives a damn, Clayton said. I just thought you should know, Mike said. Mike went to Catherine at her mother's whenever he could. He was convinced that if she could piece together her pride, she would return to their living together in the quarter. He wanted to be with her. Mike believed that Clayton still might listen to reason. The recent barriers that had been forged between Clayton and Catherine might be impenetrable, but maybe the Clayton who had taught him and whom he had worked with for years might listen to what Catherine was going through. Clayton had sent requests to Mike for documents. Mike had reviewed the request with the hospital lawyers. They filtered what they thought they could not withhold, and Mike volunteered to take the material to Clayton. Mike drove to Clayton's beach house unannounced a week later. In an envelope, he had copies of selected surgical schedules, memos, and letters, most of what Clayton had requested. Mike got out of the car. Clayton sat shoeless in an aluminum fold-up chair on the front yard of the house, drinking a mixed drink without ice from a water glass. He was shaven and had a recent haircut. Clayton had lost weight. The loose skin on his legs had lines around the knees, and his metatarsals showed under skin on the top of his feet. Mike handed Clayton the envelope. Clayton set it on the ground and stared ahead without comment. Mike took a fold-up chair that was leaning against the house and brought it back to where Clayton was sitting. Mike sat, leaning forward. You know, Mike, I think you had some points about the gastric bypass cases, Clayton said, with no revelation of malice. The more I look at it, I do think we got a little out of control. We've got new guidelines, Mike said, not looking directly at Clayton. Guidelines that were established and accepted by younger surgeons after Clayton could no longer operate. I didn't want to talk to you, Clayton said, but I figured, what the hell, you might be screwing my wife, but we had a lot of good years, you and I. Mike leaned back, feeling there was something he could say that would help Catherine, but he had no confidence that he could find the right words. Catherine still at your place, uh, Clayton asked. No, she's taking care of her mother. Iris is one crazy witch. She deserves hell, Clayton said. She's not doing well, Mike said. I'm glad, Clayton said. Mike searched for the right words. We never meant for it to happen, Mike finally said. That's bullshit, Michael. If you never meant for it to happen, it would never have happened. Catherine didn't go against you, Mike said. It wasn't like that. You went against me. Only you could have destroyed my career. You were my student, for Christ's sake. You owed me. Your brain is rotted. I'm sorry for what happened, Mike said. Clayton threw up his hands. 
but not sorry for what you've done. My God, you want money. You think I'll forgive her? I won't forgive her. She'll never get a cent. Even if the court gives her a little compensation, I'll tie it up so she'll never get a hand on it. Mike had heard Catherine's dreams of a settlement for so long, dreams of a huge lump sum and hundreds of thousands every year. You've crushed her, Mike said. You're the one that promised her eternal happiness. Deny that, Clayton said. Clayton sank into silence for minutes. He refused to look at Mike. Who's paying the legal team, Clayton finally asked. You? She doesn't have a team anymore, Mike said. Ha! I ruined Gabe. The money's gone. That son of a bitch. Maybe Catherine's mother has some, Mike suggested, knowing it wasn't true. Iris was white trash, Clayton said. Gabe married her before she was out of high school. That whole family is shit. Gabe is one pure asshole. Iris is a witch. Catherine is an adulterer. Pure shit. I think Catherine will try to make the point you mentally and physically abused Melissa, Mike said. She's probably not my kid, Clayton said. I'll prove it, too, once I get the right DNA. Don't fake it, Mike said. I'll prove it, Michael, Clayton said. Tell her that, no matter what. Clayton's hands twitched with his agitation. I'll get the proof, and she won't get the house either. No part of it. It closed months ago. Clayton descended into silence again. His breathing was labored. Mike watched him for some sign of contrition. She was good to you, Mike began. She screwed you, Clayton said. You ignored her, Mike said. I loved her, Clayton said. Mike searched for the right words to ask Clayton to reconsider, to think of Catherine. But Clayton went into the house. Mike sat for a few minutes, hurt by his failure to gain anything for Catherine. A shot rang out, the sound of a bullet, or maybe he had just imagined hearing the bullet. It startled him, and he hit the ground. From the door, Clayton fired another shot. Get out, Clayton said, before I kill you. He fired again. Mike stood with dignity and walked slowly to his car. Chapter 27 Clayton, honey, I ain't seen your little red touche in a coon's age. Crystal stepped out of the trailer door and sat on the pickup wooden steps with her bare feet on the grass. You got time for me, Clayton asked. You should have let me know. No one answered. Well, my cell phone was disconnected. You've been away too long. Busy till after seven today. I'll grab a bite then, Clayton said. Fanny's still open? Doing burgers on an outdoor grill, but you got to ask for him and pay extra. Clayton turned back toward his car. Cash only, Clayton, Crystal yelled. Nothing on the cuff anymore. Clayton sat in his car. He could see Crystal taking a peek through curtains that covered the small window that he knew was above the bed. He wanted to see what those other guys looked like. Briefly, he considered how demeaning that was, to be jealous, like of a whore. Shit, what did he really care? He paid well, and maybe those guys paid nothing, probably butt sore from riding a tractor in a cornfield. 
Wouldn't that be an asswipe? Fucking rednecks getting it for free? Crystal stepped out the door and waved for him to move on. To hell with her telling him what to do. But she kept waving and then started toward him. He wouldn't let her yell at him. He didn't give a damn who she fucked. He cranked up the engine. He took two bites out of a cheeseburger down on the grill. Tasted like fat-soaked surgical gauze. The fries drooped soft like earthworms. He ate some Oreos out of a vending machine and drank Southern Comfort straight, sitting in a corner at a linoleum-topped iron table in a hard wooden chair with horizontal slats that dug into his back so hard he had to lean forward. At seven, he went back to Crystal's trailer. A note was taped to the door. Won't be back till late on. Late on? What the hell did that mean? Fucking illiterate. Anger surged through him. How could she blow him off? He was more important than any man she'd ever laid. God damn her. He wanted to destroy her. Swat her like a fly so she'd be lying on the ground with her arms all crooked and her head twisted and her pelvis flattened out and her skin all crisscrossed with cuts from a good old-fashioned metal fly swatter. He'd shovel her up and put her in this stupid tin can of a trailer and burn the fucker to a handful of ashes with her in it. He breathed slowly a few times, and his heart slowed. He got back in the car, drove out onto the two-lane paved road, pushed the accelerator until the speedometer glowed 85. He drove to nowhere at first. When he hit the interstate, he headed south to Algiers. His mind was filled with a faceless woman, naked and crying. In Algiers, he drove to a two-story house to a whore who had been in business for at least 20 years, a favorite with some cops, too. Three rooms in use upstairs, two in the back on the first level. Madeline was in her mid-sixties and handled up to five or six girls. She always wore an off-the-shoulder black ball gown. He'd never seen her with the shoes on, and she never wore jewelry. Her black hair was long and uneven and streaked with gray and felt like wire. She looked at him with total recognition, even though it had been a couple of years. She didn't say anything. She'd never been big on talking. What you got tonight, Clayton asked. She stayed spread out on the two-seated sofa. She was watching some old movie in black and white on a TV. She was drinking Diet Coke in a glass without ice, empty cans on the floor around her. Ruthie or Tammy Faye, she said. Neither his favorites and probably worn out since the last time you saw them. It's 200 for Ruthie now, Maddie said. Outrageous. Last time was 25 bucks at most. She was scamming him because he was a doctor with a car that wasn't 30 years old. But his urge needed tending, and he wasn't about to try to bargain with Madeline, who never engaged in discussions of any type. She was the master of two-word sentences, three sometimes, and non-existent paragraphs, for Christ's sake. You got little Patty in the house? She's dead, Madeline said. Ruthie had on an Alice in Wonderland white dress with lace that came down to mid-thigh, short sleeves, and a V-neck that showed breast with angry red pimples and scabby skin. She undressed. She had nothing on underneath. She sat on the bed, her feet on the floor, her knees apart to show what she had. It looked worn out, scraggly. There were red splotches in the crevices of her thighs. What do you want, she asked. 
Clayton stared at her. Anger rushed through him like a Death Star explosion. He hated her shit brown eyes. Her hair matted like she'd been hibernating in a cave for the past month. Her breast sagging, one nipple gone and a ragged white scar in its place. Is that what you paid for looking, she said. He hit her as hard as he could with a closed fist in the side of the temple. He felt a crack, or maybe it was just her neck jerking. She screamed and he punched her full in the face. He stepped back, suddenly calm and light, as if he were on a wispy white cloud. She slumped to the floor. As her head cleared, she tried to stand up. How dare she? Trying to stand when he felled her, like a dead tree. Anger surged again and he kicked her in the side. A rib cracked. He knew the sound. He felt like grinning, swept with satisfaction. She reached for him as if he were responsible for her wretched life. Anger consumed him again. She got to her feet and he shoved her toward the window. The glass broke easily. She was still facing him, her face distorted with horror. As she began to fall, her hands flailing at the shards of glass at the window's edge. She fell back, her feet elevating, then disappearing. He heard the plop and a muffled scream as she hit the ground twenty feet down. Maddie opened the door. Her bare feet gave a silent, ghostly glide. Her eyes were hard black as she raised a pistol with both hands. You shit! She fired once. He felt a spike of pain in his left knee as he went down. His vision failed. He could barely make out the image of Maddie bending over the windowsill. He thought he saw the bulk of a man come through the door as he passed out from fear that he was going to die. Chapter 28 Clayton avoided Father Kathy's gaze. Father had married him to Catherine, but he was retired now. Father sat in a plastic upholstered chair with chrome pipe arms that was, at the closest, eight inches from Father's ramrod straight back. Father Kathy held a black Bible as big as a cereal box with a red page marker half an inch wide in red silk attached to the inner part of the spine at the top. Why would Father Kathy come to a lapsed Catholic, Clayton thought. A Catholic whose wound was serious to his walking with a limp and a fixed knee, but far from life-threatening. Obviously, it was his saving the Father was interested in. Not in him personally, probably, but his soul. Clayton was sure, sort of a generic notch on Father's soul-hunting rifle. Father was probably attracted to how he got here in this private room at the Oshner, after being found abandoned, half-dead, and near shock from blood loss from a leg wound, in a strip mall near the lake, and being taken to University Emergency. He had told no one his story, not even his doctors. And his prominence as a physician had fueled wild, curious stories in the Times-Picayune and on talk radio that had increased in incredulity over the last three days. Press had not been allowed to talk to him, he had refused colleagues' visits. Even Catherine had come. He had let her come in. He was on the verge of tears, immersed in a heavy ache in his leg that shot bolts of searing pain up the knee when he tried to move. Catherine was unmoved. What happened, Catherine asked. That was what she cared about, solving the mystery of the injury. Not about him. It had never been about him. 
He turned his head and stayed silent. What can I do, Catherine had said. Mother is ill. A curse on her. Oh, Clayton, do we need to be so cruel to each other? He moaned from a surge of pain. She must have taken it as a response to her cruelty. She touched his hand, but he took it away. Cruelty, my pet, is only perceived by those who listen and care. I do not care. You are beyond being cruel to me. Catherine stood during her entire short visit. I've heard nothing from Melissa. I don't know where she is. Clayton laughed. I still doubt she's mine, you know. Can you deny the whoring, all those extramarital fucks? She's never had my disposition. She has your eyes, I'll give her that. But not one feature of mine. She's yours, Catherine said, and she loves you. Catherine's voice turned harsh with reprimand. I was never unfaithful. My God, with the man I coddled? To be the best, Catherine said. In fucking his partner's wife, Clayton scoffed. Catherine's voice turned soft. You're not thinking straight, she said. Is it the medication? Bullshit, he said. He paused for a few minutes as he seethed in silence, and she left soon after that. Father Cathy had his eyes shut as Clayton remembered Catherine's visit. He might have been praying, but his lips didn't move. Silent prayer, maybe, or just tired. Father opened his eyes. Catherine is concerned for your health, Father said. Blasphemy, Clayton said. Pray with me, my friend. Clayton said nothing. He suspected the father needed to satisfy his own curiosity. He would take any knowledge from a confession and shout it to the world. That was the priest he had become, a gossip, loving the spotlight. Such a man of God would never fool him, never. After a long pause, father said, There was a girl with you when you were found, 16 years old. She had cuts over her body and a lung punctured, so she was barely breathing. She was sick, anemic, and sexually abused. Not by me, you heretic, Clayton said. She says her name is Ruthie, but nothing more. She's frightened. I thought you might know about her family, or who we might call to take care of her. I know nothing, Clayton said. I don't believe that, Father said. It's none of your business. That child's welfare is my business, Clayton, Father said with sharp anger. Clayton had assumed Father was here for his salvation, but for Ruthie? Get out, you charlatan, Father prayed. I don't need your prayers, Clayton said. Please tell me what you know about that little girl, Father said. Clayton laughed. When the apocalypse commences, my good man, God forgives you, Clayton. I'll come back when you're feeling better. You'll be wasting your time, Clayton said. Clayton went to the beach house on Grand Isle a week later. He could care for himself, and a nurse made daily house visits to attend to his wounds. He hurt, but had taken himself off all medications but the antibiotics. His moods were sour, and he blamed Catherine and Mike for precipitating his fall. The pain was tiring. He could not read and spent most of his time mindlessly watching whatever came onto the TV channel that he never changed.
At night, he abhorred the silence and had bought a sleep box that made sounds of waves lapping over some mystic shore. The image of Ruthie falling through that window would not leave him. Even in his dreams he saw her, usually reaching out for him, night after night. The images grew sharper, washed with colors of red and white against black and brown. He could see the black holes of her wide irises and the thin rim of her washed-out brown pupils, and he began to hear the sound of her hitting the ground. He would wake up sweating, unable to go back to sleep for hours. He became restless during the day, walking in circles in his room, dragging his leg. Finally, he called the hospital. Ruthie had been stepped down to a Catholic charity house for homeless children. He drove there alone. The nun said Ruthie was still weak and spent most of her time resting. Clayton sat in a wooden chair, staring down at Ruthie asleep on a narrow cot. It was hot and she had on no covers. The nun left after a few minutes when she assured herself Clayton was harmless. Clayton watched Ruthie's breathing, shallow and raspy. It had a tenuous echo to it. Her face was covered with the stitches still dotting pink and mauve healing scars. Occasionally, her eyelids fluttered, as if in response to some inner threat or fantasy. Her skin looked better, but her hair had been shaved and was now only half an inch regrown. He was afraid this new image of her would now come to haunt him. He looked away, unable to move, not knowing what to do. Ruthie woke up, she saw him and screamed, weakly, but as best she could. The nun rushed in. She had obviously been waiting outside the door. It's all right, child, the nun said. It's all right. Clayton moved back toward the door, unable to turn away. The nun blocked Ruthie's vision of him, as if she knew Ruthie's dreams were stuffed with him, and a new image would invade her world even more. Maybe you should leave, the nun said, without looking at Clayton. But he was already in the hall, limping toward the exit. Clayton had hoped a visit to Ruthie would erase her from his tortured nights. But there was no relief. Clayton called his lawyer and set up a trust fund for Ruthie. He instructed the lawyer to provide the improved medical care with a pediatrician and a plastic surgeon he had worked with for years. He arranged for a set sum to be given to Ruthie or her guardian every month, the amount to be adjusted to market value fluctuations every six months. And he gave a donation to the Catholic home, enough to cover their campaign goals for a new wing to their facility. Then he waited for the night to see if his visions would fade and allow him to rest. Chapter 29 Catherine was alone with Iris now, with servants gone and few visitors. Iris had become sensitive tonight. She believed evil changes had occurred in the neighborhood that she could not know. Catherine had reduced the lights in her mother's house to save on the electric bill. It would be disconnected, but if she could pay the minimum for a while longer, she could delay shutoff. On a weeknight, Catherine sat with Iris, who slept fitfully. Catherine was reading in an armchair near a table lamp. Something fell in the yard. She looked up and turned out the light. Her eyes adjusted. The silence seemed more intense. 
She went to the window. Staying to one side, do not be exposed. Oh, Jesus! Iris yelled out. It's all right, Mother. Mother of God, Iris said. Iris retreated into herself, forgetting what startled her. The quiet returned. Catherine held her breath. She heard someone on the drive. She moved quickly to the front door and looked out a side window. Then she opened the door. She saw a man. He was at the end of the drive. He was out into the street now, leaving the gate to swing open. She saw no details, but she was sure it was a man. And as he ran away, he seemed to limp. The police found a plank propped against a fence near the garages. They thought the intruder had used it to see better into the house. They canvassed the neighborhood, but they found no one. Early the next week, Catherine visited a lawyer downtown on Barone Street. She came out of the building walking to the west toward her car. She felt an odd sensation of being the object of someone's interest. She stopped and turned, looking behind her. No one seemed suspicious, although there were many on the street at that time of the day. She started again. Movement to her right caught her eye when she reached the intersection. She saw him. He stood still next to a sign pole. It was Clayton. He was scowling at her, as if he were deranged. Clayton, she said out loud. He was too far away to hear. She started toward him. He wore clothes from the beach, chinos, dockers, without socks, a pale yellow polo shirt. She was fifty feet away. She stopped, unsure of his intent. His face had not changed. He seemed without emotion. His arm leaned against the pole, holding on with his hand just above his head. His smile held no recognition, although he had not taken his eyes off her. She could feel those eyes, engaging her as if she were some soon-to-be-dead prey to be killed for the thrill of the hunt. She froze. The menace overwhelmed her. How stupid, she thought. He wasn't threatening her. But he was there. Not accidentally. But again, with no clear purpose. Clayton, she called to him. Why are you doing this? But he had already begun to move away. She reversed her direction, and controlling the panic, she walked to the garage. Twice she looked back. He did not follow. Once in her car, she locked the doors and sat. She trembled and could not move for many minutes. The next day she bought a gun and for four sessions took instruction on how to care for it and how to use it. Chapter 30 Catherine had no word from or about Melissa. The investigator, A.T. Thibodeau, continued to search for her, reporting to the lawyer. Thibodeau had talked to Catherine only once, but he called her directly from Maine on a Friday and said he had found Melissa. He would wait until Catherine could get there to bring her back. Can't you arrest her, Catherine asked. She needs family, Thibodeau said. Catherine called Mike. I can't leave Mother. Clayton doesn't care. Father refuses to come back. Would you go? You should go, Catherine, Mike said. It would mean a lot to Melissa. I can, Michael. And Melissa likes you. More than she does me sometimes. She'll listen to you. Bring her back. Does she want to come home, Mike asked. 
I have no idea. But I can't worry about her living homeless. And lawyers need her deposition. I have to prove a good reason for leaving Clayton, or he could keep everything. I need Melissa to tell the truth about him. Mike was on backup for Saturday only, and he got Peter Ravenel to cover. Mike called Catherine's lawyer. Pay the investigator to bring her back, he suggested. But the lawyer didn't want Melissa arrested locally on shaky charges to bring her back to Louisiana and have her appear as a hostile witness. That wasn't in Catherine's best interest. Chapter 31 Mike flew to Portland, Maine and rented a car. A foot of fresh snow covered the ground. The roads were recently plowed. Many roadside businesses for summer tourism trade were boarded up, the snow around them unmarked by human footprints. On side streets, salted surfaces had iced over, and turns in less often-used areas were treacherous. Mike sat across from the investigator A.T. Thibodeau, who wore jeans and a new-looking sweatshirt with a Harvard logo. It was just after 12.30 on Saturday, at a booth in a pizza hut off I-95 in South Portland. I got her, Thibodeau said. Thibodeau's voice had the rasp of steel and concrete, his Cajun accent strong enough to quickly annoy. His dark, cold eyes fixed on Mike. Mike fingered a menu clamped in a metal holder on the table as Thibodeau explained Melissa and her boyfriend lived on an estate-owned rented farm with eight or nine adults and four young children, all tenants in a commune setting. Melissa threw pottery with at least two other women and one of the men at the pottery connection on Route 27. They made decorative and useful items and sold some on the premises, but during winter, many selected popular designs were shipped out to retailers or sold through mail order. The boyfriend was working on a lobster boat in season and also as a waiter in a Wiscasset restaurant. Thibodeau's report was complete and efficient. Nothing was in writing. You talked to her yet, Mike asked. She'd run, man, Thibodeau said. A waitress took an order. I want to see her as soon as possible, Mike said. Thibodeau scratched the side of his head and frowned. We got time, man. She worked until five. It is no good to take her at work. The last flight out is 8.30 tonight. You best to make her go easy and slow, Thibodeau said. The waitress placed glasses of water on the table and laid down utensils wrapped in paper napkins. It shouldn't take long, Mike said. Let me talk to her. She afraid, Mona me, Thibodeau said. She run like a spooked deer. Thibodeau laid out a plan. He would restrain Melissa if he needed to, take her back to New Orleans in the back of a rental car. He again rejected force. I can reason with her, Mike said. I think I can convince her to come home at least for a while. Thibodeau was unsure, but he finally agreed to let Mike approach Melissa alone. They would take two vehicles to the farm. Mike could approach the house, and Thibodeau would wait out of sight on the road, ready to follow if she made a run for escape. Mike left his car unlocked. The house was old New England frame with white clapboard and a green trim. The sun glinted on the iced edges of the roof, Leaf-bare tops of tree skeletons clustered behind the house in a colorless frame to the dormant landscape. The rusted iron knocker wouldn't move, 
and Mike used knuckles on one of the upper panels. The thick door muffled a man's urgent voice, then a woman's, both unfamiliar. Mike knocked again. A rear door slammed. The front door opened. A small, muscular youth faced him, his feet planted, his shoulders squared. He was familiar. You're not welcome here, he said, his voice quivering with anger and apprehension. Mike recognized him. He was the boyfriend. I've come to get Melissa, Mike said. We knew it couldn't last, the boy said. I don't know your name, Mike said. Aaron. Aaron shut the door. A deadbolt slid into place. His grandmother's very sick, Mike said loudly, and her mother needs her. The door opened again. Aaron stood defiant. There were lights on in the big room. Toddlers played on the floor. A girl sat cross-legged watching TV. Just talk to me for a few minutes, Mike said. Aaron reddened. Go home, doctor. You don't know anything about her, about what she's been through. Do you love her, Mike asked. Aaron glared. I told you before. Melissa and her mother lived with me for a while. She's like family, Mike said. Aaron's jaw tensed. She's a remarkable young woman, Mike said. You can't let her throw her life away. Aaron turned his head to look past Mike. She doesn't cry without reason here, doctor. She doesn't dream at night with her hands pounding the headboard anymore. Her mother might lose in court without Melissa's help. Her mother wanted to send her away. Now she expects her to come running back home? We'll find her, Mike said, and I'll take her back. Is that what you're afraid of? I'm afraid of what New Orleans has done to her, Aaron said. But she can come back if she wants, Mike said, after it's over. The door shut. Somewhere behind the barn, an engine cranked and turned over. Mike could not see the car. He heard a bang from a defective muffler, then an accelerating growl. A vintage, rusted-out Willie's Jeep lurched down the drive, veering around his car. Thibodeau was right. She was running. Mike dialed Thibodeau's cell number a few minutes later. Two men take her to a restaurant closed up tight. I'll wait, Thibodeau said. You get here soon. The restaurant had rooms for let in single-occupancy cottages that faced the bay. Light glowed behind a drawn yellow shade in one cottage. Smoke drifted upward from a small pipe on the cottage roof. She disappeared quick. We wait too long, Thibodeau said. Mike agreed. Thibodeau looked in a window and came back to Mike. She with two men from the commune. She got a suitcase by the bed. Thibodeau outlined his plan. There was only one door with a single key lock below the doorknob. Entrance would take seconds. They approached the cottage from the side, crouching as they got near. Thibodeau positioned Mike to the left. Thibodeau knocked. There was no movement. Still crouching, so he was unseen. Thibodeau knocked again. No answer. Mike stood and rammed his right shoulder against the door near the lock. He followed Thibodeau in. The two men from the commune stood near the bed, hiding Melissa behind them. A.T. Thibodeau fixed his gaze on Melissa. Who are you, Melissa said. It's me, Melissa, Mike said, stepping to where she could see him. Your family needs you. I'm better here, Melissa said. Mike moved closer to Melissa. We won't hurt you. 
You need to come back, he said. Melissa ducked and dove between him and Thibodeau, running out the door. Each of the commune men propelled forward. The first one knocked Thibodeau against the wall. His head struck the edge of the table. A second toppled him on the bed. The man was strong, and Thibodeau struggled to free one of his arms. The groan of the willies cranked up and was soon fading as Melissa drove away. You got a gun, the first man asked Mike. Thibodeau moaned. We're unarmed, Mike said. His assailant released him. The first man ran outside. He slashed the tires on Mike's rental car. Mike pushed him to the ground, grabbing the knife and throwing it into the darkness of the shrubbery. Thibodeau came out the door, his attacker behind him. Thibodeau turned and gave a kick to the groin that doubled the man over. Thibodeau hurried to the truck. Get in, he yelled to Mike. In seconds, Thibodeau had the truck on the road. There was only one road back to the interstate, with only driveways and dead-end property access roads on the sides. Are you sure she went this way, Mike asked. Ain't no choice, Thibodeau said. A light snowfall glittered in the lights of the truck. The four inches of fresh ground cover gave off a pewter glow to the landscape and made dark silhouettes of the occasional house or barn they passed. That's her, Thibodeau said. Them lights too dim for a modern car. Melissa sped up as Thibodeau gained on her. Mike saw the car swerve to the right, clip a mailbox and veer back onto the road to continue. Mike looked at Thibodeau. Slow down. We'll lose her, Thibodeau said. Mike saw the headlights glare on the patch of black ice that covered a slight shallow in the road. At first, Mike thought it was a clear area, but it was too reflective for road surface. And when the tires hit the ice, the truck turned 90 degrees. The tires caught the road surface again, sideways, and the truck flipped and rolled three times. The engine screamed as part of the dashboard forced the gear shift into neutral. They were upright again, still plunging forward, but much more slowly until the front end hit the trunk of an oak. Mike smelled fuel. Get out, Thibodeau yelled, pushing on his crumpled door. Then he was trying to crank down the window. Mike kicked his partially open door. He moved around the back of the truck to help Thibodeau. Five feet from the door, there was an explosion near the rear of the truck. Flames flashed a glimpse of Thibodeau half out of the truck window. The blast blew Mike back, and he lost his balance. Thibodeau screamed. Flames were burning under the truck. Mike got to his feet. He was able to grab Thibodeau under the arms and squeeze him from the truck. He dragged Thibodeau to the edge of the road, away from the crackling fire. Another explosion hit the surrounding tree trunks. The inside of the cab shimmered with flame. Thibodeau was hurt. Mike assessed the burns to the right side of his face and his shoulder. Thibodeau's pant leg was ripped, and he had a gash in his left thigh. Mike removed his T-shirt, tore a patch to tampon on the wound, and then stripped the rest into ties for pressure. Is he all right, Melissa said. Mike jumped. He had not hurt her, too concentrated to catch the groan of the willies as she returned. He had never expected to see her again. It nothing, Thibodeau said. You need treatment, Mike said. We can use the willies, Melissa said. He can stretch out on the back seat. Is there a hospital, Mike asked. In Damariscotta. But there is an emergency room in Wiscasset. Melissa drove the willies closer to Thibodeau, and Mike helped him get in the back seat. The ER was in a strip mall and turned out to be a dock-in-the-box operation, more a first aid station 
than an equipped trauma facility. The attendant on duty called the doc who took call from home, who was, at first, willing to treat only by phone until Mike talked to him. Mike kept Melissa close and got Thibodeau into an exam room. The attendant helped Mike get A.T. out of his clothes and under a sheet. Mike brought Thibodeau water. The ER doc was not a surgeon. Thibodeau had blistered a little. The doc wanted A.T. to go to the hospital in Portland, but Mike convinced him to dress the thigh wound. Mike directed treatment of the burn areas where needed, suggested where to place ointments. Mike got the doc to sedate A.T. The doc didn't like taking directions, but Mike was firm. Without a license to practice in Maine, Mike had to negotiate when the doc had strong objections. You're going to be okay, Mike said to Thibodeau. I feel better you're getting treatment. A.T. looked at Mike blankly. The doc's going to keep you for a while. The sedation in his pain got to A.T. and he closed his good eye. Take the kid to New Orleans, Thibodeau said. I come later, you hear? Melissa was sitting in a plastic upholstered waiting room chair. Come on, Mike said. She followed with a suspicious look. Your mother needs you, and her lawyer wants to talk to you about home life with your father. Mike asked for her keys and directions to the farm. Are you going to force me? Melissa asked. I don't know. There was no traffic on the roads this time of year. The headlight beams cut into the darkness of the woods on the edge of the two-lane state road. After many miles, Mike turned onto a dirt road. Why are we going to the farm, she asked. To get your boyfriend. He slowed for ice spots on the road. Snow on the fields now glowed in the reflection of an almost full moon, unhindered by cloud. Can you get out of Maine, Mike asked. Aaron and I have dreams, Melissa said hesitantly. Do you have enough money, Mike asked. Enough, she sighed. We like it here. They were within a few miles of the farm. She looked out onto the night. I thought you'd come to get me, Melissa said. Take me back. I've changed my mind, Mike said. I'll take you back only if you want. You make the decision. Mike drove up the drive to the farm. Lights came on inside the farmhouse before he stopped the car. Melissa opened the door and ran into the house through the front door. Mike turned off the engine, rolled down the window, and waited. It was freezing, but the air had a purity to it. Within a few minutes, Melissa came out with Aaron. We're getting out, Melissa said. Don't tell me anything more, Mike said. Are you flying? They turned and discussed it. We'll fly, Melissa said. Get your stuff, Mike said. In two hours, they were in Portland Airport. As they waited on security, Mike gave them as much cash as he could from his wallet and what he could get from an ATM. They made the last regional flight connection to Bangor. Thibodeau was still sleeping in the single hospital bed in the facility. Mike waited for A.T. to awake on his own. The attendant slept on a cot in a back room. The doc had gone home. Near dawn, A.T. awoke with a start and sat straight up. Within seconds, he knew where he was. She got away, Mike said. God damn it, Boudreaux. How long had been? A few hours. Thibodeau spat on the floor. 
It's a lot of work tracking her down, he said. He stood. Let's go. Maybe the attendant can give you a ride back to your truck, Mike said. I'll try to make the noon flight back. No way, man. It's the only way, Mike said. You'll never find them. Thibodeau considered his options, but didn't reply. Mike arrived in New Orleans in the evening. Catherine's lawyer was at the airport to greet the plane. What the hell happened, the lawyer asked. She got away, Mike said. Thibodeau thinks you let her go, the lawyer said. She'll come home on her own someday, Mike said. Hey, don't bullshit me, man, the lawyer said. I don't need your working against me. The lawyer walked away. Mike went directly from the airport to Catherine's mother's house to tell Catherine about Melissa. She didn't want to come back to New Orleans, Mike said. I sent you to bring her back, not to find out what she wants, Catherine said in a tense voice. I need her. She's got a future, Mike said. She's not yours, Michael. You have no right to butt in. He was flooded with sadness. He did not believe he was at fault here. We'll talk later, he said. He turned and walked down the concrete path toward his car. I'm sorry, Catherine called. I didn't mean... He waved. It's okay, he said. Catherine was not herself. Chapter 32 The final threats of foreclosure came every few days now. Catherine was numb to them. She recognized official documents without opening the letters and burned them. She refused to sign for certified mail. Michael urged her to live in the quarter with him. She would someday. But now she was living in the only remnant of her former life. She had come to believe if she let go, she would free fall into oblivious destitution. Mike offered her money, offered to support the house payments until she could settle the divorce. But she knew the strain of money would divide them eventually. She did not have the confidence in her attractiveness now that she had always enjoyed and never doubted until everything had turned sour. Everything ripe had rotted. Everything smooth had eroded. Everything moist and healthy had dried up. Life was just dying. But she had her pride in her past, and she believed she might work things out if she could just hold herself together. She had Mike, and she did not want to fracture the only thing they still had of value, their love. She repeatedly refused Mike's money. She had only one lawyer now. Others had left for non-payment. The one remaining was desperate for work and hoped for a nice chunk of any settlement as the loan counselor. But he was barely competent as a lawyer, much less as a domestic relations lawyer. He thought the accusations of abandonment against her and her love for another man had ruined any chance for even a reasonable settlement. In the midst of her despair, she received a certified check for $10,000 from Melissa. A few weeks later, she received another. She did not tell Michael, but she began to hope that some solution was possible. She staved off repossession. She began looking for a job. For a few minutes each day, she had some hope she'd recover to love Michael as he deserved, to be a mother to Melissa. Over the next few weeks, she saw Clayton at times when she went out for errands, 
He never approached her, but he did not try to hide. She knew it was ridiculous, but fear gripped her when she saw him now. She told herself over and over, Clayton was an accomplished physician with intelligence and skills, and she should be convinced he would not harm her. She would ignore him. One night, she felt Clayton around the house again, not a sighting, but a spirit mostly conjured in dark and silence, and she called the police, but they found nothing. Michael came to her when he could, but with Clayton gone from the surgical staff, the workload at the hospital had increased beyond expectation. Catherine never abandoned the dream of living the rest of their lives together. When a sliver of doubt slipped into her mind, she busied herself with cleaning the stove or refrigerator or talking to her mother until it was gone. Another certified check from Melissa brought another $10,000. A yellow post-it was stuck to the check. I'm fine. I miss you. Love him. Catherine felt an urge to destroy this check. It was incredibly generous. But she fought humiliation. How silly. She knew she would overcome the embarrassment of accepting handouts from her daughter and do nothing. The reality of foreclosure still loomed. She feared eviction if the balance was not satisfied, and she had been using some of Melissa's money for daily expenses. She drove to the bank that held the mortgage. She deposited Melissa's check. She knew the loan officer well now. She sat in front of his desk. Here, she said, taking out her checkbook, what will it take? He shrugged. It's paid up. I think you're current. It's impossible, Catherine said. Late yesterday, I think, he said. Perlina took the payment. Who paid, she stammered. My father? I'll ask. He called and asked Perlina the details. Not your father. A doctor. Uh, Dr. Boudreau. She was confused. She still believed to accept Mike's generosity would eventually destroy his love. She was sure of it. When she was living with him, she had been able to split expenses. But now they were apart, and she had problems far distant from his world and their future. Michael was comfortable, but not wealthy, and she could not erode his savings. If she and Clayton were still married, she would have solved this family mess. She would not be debt-ridden and dependent. It would be different. She drove to the hospital only ten minutes away. She paged Mike and met him in the lobby. He was in scrubs. Michael, you can't be paying my mortgage, she said. I don't need it. Melissa's helping out. I can't let you be evicted, Mike said. What would you do? Where would Iris go? Please, I can manage, Catherine said. I don't want this changing what we have together. She tried to write him a check for the payment. It would only partially cover the total he had paid, but he would see she had resources. He refused. Oh, Michael, she said. She hugged him, oblivious to the crowd in the lobby. Don't do anything like this again, she whispered. I don't want money ever to come between us. He held her shoulders and looked at her earnestly. Nothing will ever come between us, he said. Chapter 33 Iris tried to cooperate when Catherine coaxed food into her, but she lost concentration and missed the spoon like a newborn. With the cubes of beef, Iris knocked the fork out of Catherine's hand 
and then her arms jerked up and tilted the tray so the dishes fractured to splinters on the hardwood floor. That's enough for tonight, Catherine said, and she fought Iris's flailing movements to attach arm and leg restraints to the side rails. It's best, Catherine said with a touch of guilt at restricting her mother. Then she set to cleaning up the mess on the floor. When Catherine returned, Iris was calm. Catherine sang to soothe her mother. Irene, good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dreams. When Iris babbled, rambled in time, she used enough cleanly wrought detail so Catherine knew her meaning. My mother told me I should never have children, Iris spat out once. And Catherine thought she had made that up. Iris said she knew her mother had always wanted more children. And Iris had tried for pregnancy after Catherine, but somehow her mother had gotten her tube scarred, so the new little Irises never made it to the womb. That's what Catherine was told. Once, Catherine was embarrassed by her mother's honesty when her mother blurted out blasphemies, then breathed deeply to yell, I hate his breath. I hate the touch of his filthy hands. Catherine had placed her hand on Iris's arm. Don't touch me, Iris said. Iris was lost in some internal dream. Maybe she thought Catherine's hand was Gabe's for a moment. Don't ever touch me again, goddamn you. Then, as was her habit, Iris had dropped into a long period of quiet. Mike came as often as he could to see Iris. Sometimes he watched Iris when Catherine went out to get food. At other times, he sat with Iris, content to know it seemed to help her. He talked to her about his mother in college. He talked to Iris about dreams and nightmares. Sometimes he made her laugh. And when he sometimes made her sad, he quickly changed his line of thought. This night, Catherine had made iced tea. And Catherine and Mike both sat in chairs by Iris, who was restrained, with her eyes closed. With Mike's help, Catherine had initially tried to prop up a TV on a stand, but the TV agitated Iris, and then they had taken it out of the room. Mike had brought a radio, and there were some stations that played suitable music. Catherine had tuned in a classical music station, and a string quartet played in muted volume. Is that you, Clayton? Iris asked. They thought she had been asleep. It's me, Iris, Michael. The moon has spots from the crud. Mother, it does. Try to sleep, Catherine said. Iris fixed on Mike. Don't hurt Catherine, she said. I love Catherine, Mike said. Iris tried to sit up but was held by the restraints. I cannot think well, she said, with absolute clarity. Catherine gently touched her mother's shoulders, but Iris refused to relax. Impeach me, Iris said. Release you, Catherine glanced at Mike. Iris groaned what seemed to be agreement. Catherine released the restraints on Iris's arms. Her mother breathed quickly with exhaustion and made no precipitous movements to escape. Catherine released the leg restraints. For a moment, Iris's attention had lost Catherine. Iris babbled her jumble of thoughts. She was subdued. She cried. She fell asleep. Her wires may be crossed, Mike said, but she had something on her mind. I'll ask her tomorrow, Catherine said. Sometimes I can understand. 
Iris lay back now, her arms on her chest, her feet spread. Catherine walked Michael to the door and said goodnight. The next morning, the alarm clock failed, and Catherine slept more than two hours beyond Iris's morning meal. She rushed to her mother's room. The room was silent, the bed empty, the window open. Iris's nightclothes were draped over a chair, as if she might have been taking a bath and would be back in a few seconds to put them on. Catherine ran to the window. The body was naked, lying face down in the muck of a storm-drenched flower bed under the open window. Iris's arms splayed as if she might have tried to soar. She fell maybe fifteen feet. She looked discarded. Catherine cried out and hung her head, but she did not cry. Even when it was so obvious her mother was dead, she felt relief that quickly turned to guilt. God, she thought, I've killed her. After the body had been removed, Catherine called Michael. The removal of the restraints was not wise, but it was a kindness, she continually pleaded to herself. Her mother had savored restful freedom. It had been a gift she deserved. That was the way Catherine would try to think about it. Mike saw the obituary photo of Iris in the Sunday paper in the doctor's lounge as he was waiting to start a case. It was an early photo taken when Iris and Gabe had made Catherine Queen of Rex. Mike quickly read the hollow words about her life, and he wondered if Catherine wrote them herself, or had she depended on strangers. But the image of Iris as a strong woman, so different from her later years, grabbed his interest. Her life had turned into an empty, decorated eggshell. Her isolation was hidden in the glitter of her fragile world. A sham marriage. A child whom she would never really let love her. Had she been afraid to accept Catherine's affection, afraid it might diminish her in some way? And it was easy to blame her for Gabe's failures as a husband and a father. She must have fueled at least some of Gabe's evil by her cold ineptness and simply caring enough to listen and console. Iris was not simply a victim of fate, a log floating on the Mississippi until it reached the gulf where it decayed into the elements. Not the Iris Mike had known, and who had hurt Catherine. Iris had paddled downstream through life on her own, taking advantage of rapids and falls to catapult her onward, always alone, finally to run aground. The wake was on Saturday. Clayton's leg had a complication of infection after his third reparative procedure, and he was walking with a four-pronged cane. He had not been out of the house for two days. His leg still ached where the bullets had shattered part of the tibia and femur. His peers in the hospital had twice placed and replaced rods and pins. He positioned his leg on a stool while sitting, and in the bed he propped up the lower leg with pillows. He'd find a position that seemed to help, and then it would start aching again. Then he'd move to a new position. He'd not had any real sleep since Maddie had shot him. On the third day, the pain was worse when the rain moved in. On the fourth day, the sun was shining and there was a brisk breeze. The pain was less, and he went out to collect the delivered newspapers. He didn't need the cane today. He sat down to read. He turned to the obituaries. The obituary for Iris inflamed him. Nothing was accurate. She seemed a saint. She was God's chosen daughter who gave her life so that others might be saved. Where was the truth? She had been a bitch. 
her husband a cheat, her daughter a witless whore. It was Iris's genes that had ruined Melissa. There would be a wake. Catherine's fake tears, Mike holding her hand. He could not erase their images that haunted him with incredible detail. He could think of nothing else. He drank bourbon out of a water glass. But the images were still there. He went to bed but could not sleep. He walked until his leg ached more and then went back to bed. When the sun rose, he loaded his pistol and brewed a pot of coffee to fill a thermos to carry with him on the way to New Orleans. Chapter 34 Iris lay in an open casket at the wake. Her hands were one on top of the other on her chest, the fleshless skin clinging to the bones as if she'd been dead for months. Her face had a dried leaf color with tulip-red lips. There was little relation in this image to her life except for a maniacal intensity that she had taken on in her later years that no embalmer could ever cover. Most of the mourners looked away after a quick glance, uncomfortable with death, with the unskilled preparation, and how empty the corpse seemed. In the reception area, food was displayed on multiple tables, and a bar served many alternatives of mixed drinks, beer, and wine. Mike stood next to Catherine when Melissa walked in alone. Her plain but attractive mauve dress was designed to de-emphasize a pregnancy, but Melissa was clearly in the third trimester. Catherine gasped when she saw Melissa. A surge of joy surprised her, followed by a confusion as to how she should respond. She feared humiliation in front of former friends and family if Melissa rejected her. Certainly Melissa wouldn't turn away from her. Mike did not hesitate and stepped quickly to Melissa, taking her in his arms. Melissa laughed in delight in seeing him. Many in the crowd were looking now, and there were gasps of recognition. Catherine watched the affection of Mike and Melissa, and all her resentments fell from her. She walked over to Melissa when Mike released her, and she held her tightly. I love you, she said, all that you've done. No one in the room but Mike heard, but everyone in the room sensed some significant emotional transference, and the crowd surged forward to say hello to Melissa. Mike squeezed Catherine's hand, and then she looked at him, her eyes happier than he had seen them in many months. After a few minutes of greetings, Melissa came to Catherine and Mike. When are you due, Mike said. Eight weeks, Melissa paused, and then she took Mike's hand. Aaron and I wondered if you'd be the godfather. You don't have to be at the christening. We'd be pleased just to have you say yes. Mike grinned in surprise and pleasure. They cared for him, and he was proud of it. I wouldn't miss it, he said. He hugged Melissa again. Catherine smiled. She had already begun to feel the joy of imagining her role as a grandparent, and she was pleased that Melissa was so happy to see her. Clayton had parked a block away in a grocery store parking lot. He had flanked the funeral home and approached the rear double door that opened out onto an alley, away from the front entrance where the mourners entered. He stood in the shadows. One of the doors was ajar. He could hear the mourners. He saw a movement in the parlor, but could not make out faces. He heard the hushed condolences, heard Michael's voice. Michael's joy at Melissa's return angered him, but he heard her voice, 
happy and confident in ways he never remembered. Catherine's voice seemed to sing. He'd heard that before, when she was young, when she had seen life as all hers. He flushed, trembled. His leg pain shot up through his body into his brain. God, how he hated her. He hobbled in through the back door. Mike paused when he saw Clayton. Clayton was barely recognizable, unshaven for days. His tan chinos were stained and his polo shirt torn under one armpit. His cane supported him, his back hunched over. His watery eyes moved constantly around the interior, sometimes looking up without purpose. He carried a gun loosely in his right hand, the barrel pointing down. Mourners became silent, suddenly aware of Clayton's presence, as if an icy mist had engulfed the room. Catherine saw Clayton. She gasped. Clayton moaned, his face contorted. She reached for her bag that she had placed on a chair next to the wall. She fumbled with a drawstring that closed the top, finally freeing it. She reached in and removed the gun. Jezebel, Clayton yelled. He held the gun before him, his head bent, his eyes looking at the gun as if he seemed surprised it was there. He raised the gun, aiming as if he were at a target practice. Catherine was trying to free the safety on her pistol, her eyes down. It clicked. She never saw Clayton's blazing, roomy eyes. Mike leapt forward toward Clayton. In two steps, he would be on top of him, coming from the side. Clayton fired. People fell to the floor. Others ran from the room. Catherine held her gun loosely in both hands, working to point it toward Clayton. Suddenly, with the bullets entering her body, her motions turned arbitrary. Her gun fell to the floor as she slumped. Mike tackled Clayton on his injured leg. Clayton cried out and went down. Mike tried to rise, and Clayton swung the gun at his head, stunning him. Catherine moaned, lying on her side. Two shots had entered her chest, a third in her left temple. Mike reached her in seconds, felt her heart stop as he held her, felt her last breath on his lips as he saw the absence of the soul cloud her eyes into an opaque stare at some infinitesimal world. Clayton froze, his eyes looking at Catherine, his mouth in a grimace of a misdirected smile. He was feeling the surge of murderous power. He focused on Mike, her lover. His anger shifted. He felt the need of an executioner to deliver justice. He positioned his cane, retrieved his gun, and began to stand. Melissa, with her hands holding her belly, saw her father rising. Her mother's gun was on the floor inches from her. She couldn't bend to reach the gun, and she fell to her knees and grabbed it. Her father was taking aim again. Her right hand felt the chill of the metal, and she brought the gun up. She fired twice. Clayton felt little pain with the first bullet. How odd. His light pain was gone. An ironic blessing. He crumpled, but it seemed as if he were someone else, not himself. He saw two more movements of the gun in Melissa's hands, but heard nothing. Then she faded as the scene faded, the edges closing in. The figures of Catherine held by Michael, and Melissa lowering her weapon, rapidly diminishing, as if he were in a rocket leaving Earth.
Chapter 35 A few months after Catherine and Clayton were buried in separate cemeteries, Melissa delivered a healthy girl, and Mike flew to California. Aaron met him at the airport. Aaron strapped Mike's bag in the bed of his pickup truck. On the driver's side door was a logo with red letters and a black border. Aaron Bernstein, and a new line, Restorations, with a phone number below. Aaron seemed subdued as they drove. He said no more than, hello, and I'll take your bag. Aaron was on the 101 and kept a strict five miles below the speed limit. Mike had always thought of him as a confident, talkative kid. Where do you live now, Mike said. Not too far, Aaron said. You like it here, Mike asked. It's okay. Better than Maine? I guess. There was a snapshot of Catherine holding the baby wrapped in a blanket taped along all edges to the dashboard. A great kid, Mike said. Aaron smiled grimly. After an hour, Aaron pulled into the drive of a small white bungalow. The front door opened as they got out of the truck. Your bag is safe in the back, Aaron said. A small wizened woman with gray hair stood in the doorway. She smiled when Mike was close. I'm Clara Bernstein, Aaron's mother. Mike held her outstretched hand. And Mary Beth's grandmother, he said. He let go of her hand. Is this your first grandbaby? Why, yes, it is. She's just beautiful. The front door opened into a living room with a sofa and a recliner facing a large TV set on a stand. On the left was an open dining area with a door to a small kitchen. A door in the back wall led to a hall and presumably the bedrooms. Melissa sat in the recliner. She was nursing. She held a blanket so her breast and the baby were not visible. Hi, she said. And you, how are things, Mike asked. She looked down at the baby, lifting the edge of the blanket. I'll finish up in a minute so you can take a look, she said. Melissa had gray circles under her eyes. She had put on weight, and her cheeks were full. Her dull eyes moved slowly and seemingly without purpose, the whites reddish and moist as if she'd been crying. Her lips were dry and cracked. She separated the baby from her and discreetly adjusted her bra and buttoned her blouse. She burped the child over her shoulder and then cradled it in her arm as she tried to stand. She was weak and could barely move. Aaron rushed over to take the baby. Aaron held the baby up to Mike. The newborn had sparse black hair matted in clumps and curls. The eyes were shut. The face looked relaxed, but the skin was flushed. On the left side was a red birthmark that covered the cheek, the eye, and the forehead. It would change with time, fade, but there would be a deformity. There was no effective treatment. Melissa had turned so she could push herself out of the chair. Once standing, she turned to Mike and fell into his arms. I'm so glad you came, she whispered. I've missed you. He held her, felt her relax in his arms. My godchild, he said. She's beautiful. He reached in his coat pocket and handed her a small box wrapped in white paper and tied with gold ribbon and a bow. She opened it. How thoughtful, she said, holding up a silver cross on a chain. She showed it so Mrs. Bernstein could see. Do you like it, Manna? But Mrs. Bernstein did not respond, 
and turned to bring refreshments for them all from the kitchen. They talked in spurts for a while. Melissa was exhausted. She had had preeclampsia and had been symptomatic. Aaron's business was in a slump when houses were not in demand. Mrs. Bernstein missed Philadelphia. She had been west for the first time. She had arrived the night before last. Aaron Mike said, help me with my bag. The two of them went out front. As they got near the truck, Mike grabbed Aaron's arm. What's going on? Mike asked. Nothing, Aaron said. It's manna and Melissa's postpartum depression. I understand the depression, Mike said. What about manna? She doesn't want the christening, Aaron said. She doesn't want her granddaughter to be brought up Catholic. What do you want, Mike asked. I want what Melissa wants. That's the way I've always wanted it, Aaron said. Then that's the way it should be, Mike said. Do you want me to talk to your mother? I don't think so, Aaron said. She won't change how she feels. But she's going to let the christening go on, isn't she? She won't attend, Aaron said. That's what she told us. She came all this way. She's stubborn, Aaron said. Mike grabbed him by the shoulder so he could not look away. Everything's going to be all right. You and me, we're going back in there and make those women happy. Your daughter's christening is a joyous occasion in the witness of the Lord. Let's do it for her and for Melissa. Aaron didn't move. Mike shook him. Did you hear me? Aaron nodded slowly. The christening went fine, but without Mrs. Bernstein standing by her family. Mike had a picture of his godchild laminated and installed it in his wallet. When he was home, Melissa sent five-by-seven photos of Mary Beth every few weeks, which he framed and lined up on his mantle. Melissa called regularly as she regained her health. Chapter 36 More than a year later, after Mass, Mike walked out of the cathedral. Rosie Dayside walked up to him. Girl wants to buy a man a cup of coffee, she said. She was pretty, in a light blue, knee-length dress, with a red bow gathering her hair into a ponytail. They sat near the back of Café du Monde and ordered coffee. Where's Stephen, Mike asked. Rosie looked at him, puzzled. Who's Stephen? Your husband works at Pierre's. It was Chris, Rosie said, and he worked at the Ritz. Mike had to smile. You living in the quarter, he asked. I didn't marry him, Michael. Mike was surprised. It just didn't seem right, she said. A tiny Vietnamese woman with a permanent smile delivered coffee. It was terrible about Catherine, Rosie said. Are you okay, Mike? Mike took a long, slow sip. Catherine and I had those talks at the retreat, Rosie said. I still remember them. I liked her. I miss her, Mike said. Was it hard for her, Rosie asked. Her mother died, did you know? Her father abandoned her in every way. And after leaving her husband and trying to do the best for her daughter... She was filled with guilt and anger that no one should be forced to live through. But her daughter's doing well, Rosie asked. 
has a little girl now, walking and talking. I visit her every few months. She's happy? I think so, Rosie. How can we know? They seem a loving family. But I always wonder if Melissa will ever reach her potential. Does she have a career, Rosie asked. She helps Erin, her husband. And they're in love, in the way Catherine loved. At times, Catherine was selfless in ways that amazed me. Did Melissa know that Catherine loved her? Rosie asked. She did at the end, Mike said. I think she realized what her mother had been through. But they were not close, Rosie said. I doubt it, except maybe on the last day. Melissa rebelled, I think because of what she saw at home. She reached out to strangers, and she found a good kid for a husband. In the end, I think Melissa understood that her mother really needed what she needed. Love, Rosie said. Real love you didn't doubt and could always depend on, Mike said. What about you, Michael? Have you found someone? Catherine's still with me, Rosie. I still relive the good times and quiet moments. Mike signaled for the waitress for more coffee. How's your career going, Mike asked. I saw the photos of your work on the back of the symphony program, your new exhibit. I'm moving to New York, Rosie said. Mike was surprised. Two galleries have been selling my work, the sculptures especially. It's where I want to be. Fresh coffee arrived. Mike settled the bill. That's terrific, Mike said, with less enthusiasm than he had expected. Come visit, Rosie said. It'll be a few months. But I've got a chance of a couple pieces being accepted in an exhibit on American art at the Whitney. You've come a long way, Mike said. She smiled, still not definite. But no matter what they decide, you could still come see the galleries that are carrying me. They do it first class. Mike looked up. Rosie was staring at him. That would be great, he said. He'd said it by reflex, but as he held her gaze, he knew it might just be possible with time, and he thought he might enjoy it. The first and second installments of The Surgeon's Wife are available on podcast number 19 and number 20. The Surgeon's Wife is also available in print and online at Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, and selected bookstores. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryInLiteraryFiction.com.